on this episode of the Nature's Living Show, Naked Economics. This episode of the Nature's Living Show is brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. At Bear Oaks, we offer traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Free your body, free your mind. www.bearoaks.ca Welcome, dear listener, to episode 151 of the Naturist Living Show. My name is Stéphane Deschain, and I'm your host for this podcast and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. And before we get started today, I just want to uh, let everybody know that uh, Planet Nude, we talk about Planet Nude being a uh, a blog uh, by Evan Nix, um, who... If you've been listening regularly for a while, you know from the past episodes that Evan has a uh, great podcast that was on this show for a while. Several of the episodes of Naked Age can be found still in the uh, archive. Uh, but it's also a standalone uh, podcast now. But he's also been writing, and he's ri- writing on a blog. And uh, he's turned that blog into a podcast. It's, it's kind of interesting because he's uh, reading... Well, he's not reading. He's having an automated voice reading, and these computerized voices are sounding more and more natural. So it's actually a pretty good read, and it makes it a different way to keep up with his podcast. So uh, why don't we listen to the promo for the Planet Nude podcast? Introducing the Planet Nude podcast, a journey to a world of nudity and nudism, where we explore its rich history, cultural significance, activism, and art. Immerse yourself in the articles from our newsletter, Planet Nude. Join us as we share thought-provoking insights, captivating stories, and interviews that will expand your understanding. Whether you're a nudist enthusiast or simply curious, the Planet Nude podcast is your gateway to discovery. Subscribe now on your preferred podcast platform to embark on an enlightening journey. Or, subscribe to our free newsletter at www.planetnude.co. The Planet Nude Podcast, uncover the world of nudity in all its fascinating forms. And to continue, we have some people to thank for all of the uh, support you're getting, not just for listening, but for some of you who are supporting us financially. Samantha, do you want to tell us more about that? Thank you, Stefan. Yes, we would like to thank the very generous donations of Thomas B., Brian A., Adrian L., Donald S., and Sam L. Thank you all so very much for your support month after month and for being a dedicated listener. It is truly appreciated. And thank you to all of our listeners. Your support month after month means so very much. So thank you. Thank you, Samantha. And uh, today's episode is actually called Naked Economics because we are talking to Dr. Victoria Bateman who is an academic economist at University of Cambridge in the UK. And I first uh, learned about uh, Dr. Bateman when she was protesting uh, Brexit, and she was doing it nude, which, of course, is very relevant to naturism. 
Uh, of course, she wasn't being a naturist. She was uh, using her body in a way to protest, which is also a very common way that nudity is used. There's all kinds of nudity. Nudity can be speech because it means so much in our society and it has such an impact on people. And she showed a lot of courage in doing that. She was trying to uh, partially, she started before in the Brexit in trying to regain her uh, her body and her control over her body. And in the academic circles, that's not typical. It's a very formal area. People are supposed to be very uh, proper, especially, I, suppose, I suspect, in the UK even more than perhaps in Canada. And, of course, women are often judged differently than men, including in academia. Sometimes more harshly even by women than they are by men themselves, who are, even though she was really speaking against uh, patriarchy in a lot of ways. It reminds me of Gwen Jacob, who you would have heard we in an earlier episode where we interviewed her and she told her story how, uh, well, it's, uh, it's 2023 when I'm recording this, so 27 years ago, um, she won the right for women to be top free in Ontario by not just accepting the status quo, but by fighting. And uh, sadly, it's still not typical today, even though she won the right. Social pressure still keeps women from accepting uh, their ability to control their bodies in a lot of ways and forces them to uh, give in to societal pressure in order to be accepted. And that's not right. The shaming that, that comes with social pressure is not right. So it might be surprising that uh, as an ec economist, she would be particularly interested in that. But as you'll see, she actually finds it very relevant, and it is. Um, there's a whole economic side to this. She's truly an inspiring person, in my opinion, but I'll let you judge for yourself. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm Victoria Bateman. I am an academic economist at the University of Cambridge over in England. I have a particular speciality in feminist economics, which means that I am very interested in women's bodies, um, women's bodily autonomy, and how they are judged by society. And more generally, the absolute importance of women's bodily freedom for economies to flourish, as well as, of course, for women as individuals to um, be healthy and happy. I, sh I should probably say most people would probably know me better as a naked protester rather than as an academic economist. So <laughs> I well, don't you know, know that's, whether that's... Yes, that's fair. Uh, yeah. um, uh, yes, I, I certainly, I became aware of you uh, yeah. when you were protesting Brexit. Yeah. Um, and 2016, you, that must have been, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And would would it be fair to say you were using nudity as a way to get your point, to amplify your point and get more attention? So I would say that, you know, as a woman, I am perfectly comfortable with using the combined force of body and brain <laughs> in yes. order to get my message out there. And so the first time I pro protested naked was in 2016, and it was in resistance to Brexit, to, to Britain's exit from the European Union. And I felt very much that Britain was becoming 
and still is in some ways becoming quite isolationist and looking to the past rather than to the future, putting up barriers between ourselves and the rest of the world. And that included, for example, stripping us of our freedom of movement as British citizens, you know, our ability to go beyond the four shores of Britain to, <laughs> to, to study, to work across Europe, to, you know, to marry and build families with people from, you know, beyond our own shores. And I felt very strongly, therefore, about the way Brexit was limiting our freedoms as individuals. And so I decided to strip off my clothes and use the slogan, Brexit leaves Britain naked, in order to, to condense down the many thousands of words that I'd written on why Brexit was a bad idea into one visual message with a single metaphor. And it's interesting because some people say to me, well, by saying Brexit leaves Britain naked, aren't you saying that nakedness is a bad thing? And what I would say to that is that if it's cold outside, which it most definitely <laughs> is right now in the UK, then walking out there on your own as a country into choppy oceans <laughs> and, you know, the cold winds blowing in our direction from, for example, Russia at the moment, then, you know, being left naked is probably not the best idea. But, you know, on a happy, sunny, <laughs> sunny day, in a warm day in my home when we don't have to worry about energy bills, then, <laughs> you know, it might be a different thing. It's, uh, yes, it was, very, the, your, your, your nakedness, your nudity, your exposure, Mm -hmm. um, was very symbolic to what you were yes. saying. And um, what's interesting, though, in your book, you're, you're looking at uh, nudity, naked feminism, uh, mm -hmm. also uh, yeah. not just as symbolic, but as a, as a yeah. problem uh, for women and as yeah. a, a challenge for feminism even. Yes. What, what what I find interesting is I t absolutely expected you, if I, if I knew you before, to have an issue with Brexit because from as an ec economist, uh, markets are important and closed markets are not as good as open markets, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. But your book is much more sociology than economy. It is. It is. It is personal and it is political and it is very much grounded in the idea that as a social scientist, you have to be a magpie, you have to draw on different elements, you have to draw on history, philosophy, psychology, sociology, you know, gender studies, and try and knit together different elements that there's a limit to how much you can understand the world around you by just being in one little silo. And I think, you know, economists have historically been very, very bad at engaging with and learning from the other social sciences. And so what I really try to do with this book is to is to do that. And I think if we're going to truly understand, you know, the constraints that face women across the world, then we have to have that more open-minded approach. And we also have to not stay too rigidly to our ivory towers. You have to, in a sense, either mentally or physically, you know, journey across the world, listen to the life stories of women from the past and the present, dig into the way that women's lives are different in, say, Iran, Afghanistan, Egypt, versus, you know, uh, you know Canada and, and the UK. 
rather than just stay, staying stuck in your own little ivory tower with your books and with your mathematical models of the world or whatever else. <laughs> are, are there other social uh, econ economists or is that you? Oh, well, um, I, I definitely wouldn't claim to be the only one. Um, and, you know, Becker, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist, Gary Becker, was seen as one of the one of the first modern day economists to really take a step into the social world. And what he did was to use economic concepts in order to try and understand things like family life in order to try and understand why, for example, historically, women have tended to be housewives and men have tended to be breadwinners. So there is a tradition of doing that, but it has been done in quite a rigid way in terms of taking ideas from economics and then almost in an imperial fashion, trying to roll them out into the rest of the social sciences. Um, so almost forcing your own subject, economics, on everything from sociology to history without learning, um, you know, without it being a two-way process in which you learn something back in return. I mean, I would say in its, very, you know, in its much earlier days, economics in the 1700s, early 1800s, was much more rounded. And really, as an economist, you, you, you understood politics, you understood society, you, you um, had your nose in what was happening in terms of theology and religion and so on. But by the end of the 19th century, by as you're getting into Vic, the, the height of Queen Victoria, <laughs> by the end of the 19th century, e economists start to become obsessed with the idea that science is superior to the arts. And of course, in the 19th century, you can understand why, because Britain had been going through this industrial revolution and science and technology seemed to be transforming the world, you know, from steam trains to cotton mill machinery and iron and steel furnaces and so on. Science and technology seemed to be the root of riches. And so from economist's point of view, studying the economy, science and technology seemed to hold the keys to the future, whereas the art started to be seen as a bit too emotional, a bit too soft. And so economists started to you know, reject their past and to instead want to mould economics into a very mathematical science, something like physics. And with that, they became quite detached from the rest of social sciences became in a sense more and more like an applied mathematics and indeed you know if you look at what undergraduates study on economics degrees today a lot of what they're doing is using mathematical equations in order to try and understand and model the economy and you know i think maths can be extremely helpful i wouldn't you know dump the maths but at the same time as an economist if you're to truly understand the world you can't just do maths you need to understand something about society, politics, you know, philosophical questions about life and so on. Um, so, yeah, so, so economics, the, the journey, the history of economics has been quite up and down. And, you know, something else that's significant about the time when modern day economics was forming, so that late 19th century after the Industrial Revolution, is at that time women were increasingly being pushed into the home. So before the Industrial Revolution, it was actually pretty normal for British women, European women, Western women to go out to work. 
Um, so you would leave home as a teenage girl, you would go and get a job, whether it was on a farm, whether it was in domestic service or later in a, in a factory. And it was normal for you to go out to work. And you, because you had financial independence from that, you had a degree of control over your life. You weren't under the thumb of your father who was trying to marry you off because you know you were a financial burden. You owned your own, you earned your own money, and with that you owned your own life. You and that meant you owned your own body in the sense that you could make your own decisions about whether, when, and who to marry and you know family life. So actually there was a surprising degree of freedom for for women before the Industrial Revolution. But then in the course of the Industrial Revolution, actually things moved backwards for women. Women were increasingly pulled out of the workforce and ended up in the home. And that's when you get this, what's seen as the traditional model of family life, the housewife and the male breadwinner starting to form by the middle to late 19th century. And that's at the very time that modern day economics is forming, moving in this more scientific mathematical direction. And because that is growing out of a society that's becoming much more rigid in terms of gender roles, then economics also starts to become seen as much more of a a study of men. You know, women are in the home, that's seen as separate to the economy. Men are out there in the workplace in politics so that kind of public sphere is seen as the economy and that comes to be seen as very separate to what's happening in the home and in people's social life in society so yeah so the the history of how economics has evolved developed over time it's gone in a very specific direction and it's very much rooted in the, the history the history of its of its day well we have a quite a history of uh Thinking that we can do better than nature, and that uh, yeah. we 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 you know when my, when I was born, uh, they told my mother not to breastfeed because we could do better than really. Oh wow. yes, yes, yes. In the wow. 1966 uh, mm-hmm. formula was a superior. We why why yeah. we know what yeah. humans need. Evolution it apparently is. didn't. Yeah. Um, so also, there was a, a lack of trusting women's own natural bodies. Really. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And. and I uh, my, the first ten years of my life was uh, spent in marketing and advertising agencies, and um, that's where you learn that if humans were logical and rational all the time, there would be no need for advertising and marketing. You just <laughs> absolutely provided a good product at the right price, and people would buy it if the price was there was the best price. It would be that simple. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, we so many things come in: self esteem and uh, self confidence and identity and culture. Yeah. We are nothing. Uh, yeah. We are we are not logical at all. No, no, no. We're we are, very we, emotional we, creatures. Yes, we don't abide by the standard set of assumptions that economists like to like to make for us. That's right. <laughs> but perhaps on a macro level, we do. Does that is that possible? Um, so does it all turn out right in the end? I think there's a lot that you can't understand about the economy without accepting that emotions play. An important role in you know in our lives and I think probably the best example I can give um, in terms of that is the boom and bust cycle mm-hmm. okay, so the ups and downs in the economy and you know, our economy is going through a down <laughs> right now let's right. hope it turns to an up in the future 
And you know, that's that up and downness of the economy is quite difficult to explain without bringing emotions to the party. Mm. And the reason why emotions are so important is that the future is always uncertain. You know, who four years ago, who would have predicted a global pandemic? Who would have predicted, you know, Russia marching into Ukraine, for example? You know, mm-hmm. the future is so unknown, so uncertain. And the thing when the future is uncertain is that it's very difficult to rely on um, rational decision making. You know, so if you're a business deciding what to produce, how much to invest, if you're a household deciding, you know, what where to put your pension pot. Um, whether to move house, you know, whether to whether to bet on the property market, whether to move to a bigger home or, or whatever, you know, you've got to all the time when we're making economic decisions in our daily lives, you're having to, in a sense, predict the future, mm-hmm. but the future is so unpredictable. And that means that we are often guided by our gut feelings, our emotional responses to what's going on around us. And in, for example, the stock market, you're driven by, you know, feelings of fear, greed, of looking what other investors are doing and then following the herd and so on. And, you know, with all of that comes the ups and downs of the markets and the ups and downs of the economy that we jump on bandwagons and we go off in one direction and then things go horribly wrong. We all fall off and then we're all very fearful and we all batten down the hatches and things get worse and worse until some people start to brighten up, start to spend again, and then we all get back on the bandwagon again. So I think, sadly, things in terms of you know, the fact we're not fully rational reasoned creatures it doesn't necessarily all even out that actually um (laughs) things are very very up and down uh uh, you know as as a result of that yeah like the recent bank run in the u.s oh uh, yes was completely emotional right fear fear Mm. fear and which it became a fait accompli as they say yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, as an economist, you would say never have a bank that specialises in one sector. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is crazy, the idea that anyone <laughs> um, backed and had faith in a bank that had specialised in one sector. I mean, OK, you can learn so much from history. Whenever that's happened in history, it's gone bottom up and you know, <laughs> it's gone horribly wrong. Uh, you need to, as a bank, diversify your uh, your risks and so spread your loan buck, in a sense, across so many different sectors because right. sectors are, are hit in different different time periods in different ways by, you know, what's going on in the world, different shocks and so on. And things, you know, you can try and diversify your risks a bit more if you're a, a bank dealing with lots of different parts of the economy rather than just specialising in one. So really, it was doomed from the beginning if you'd look to history. But as you say, you know, things like greed and hope, you know, <laughs> hope um, drive, drive, um, drive things in a, in a particular, in a particular direction. Yes. Yeah. So um, let's get back to your book, actually. So I've read this one. Uh, and I'm glad, actually, that I, we waited until now. In fact, I'm not sure that you should read this one if you hadn't read this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, they do build on each other. <laughs> well, the importance of, uh, because you don't address it as much as you do, the economic mm-hmm. importance to society of women is what you address mm-hmm. here. Um, without right. knowing that, this is just kind of a theoretical of why women should be 
equal because it's nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it is. I'm not yeah. disagreeing with that. But you make a very <laughs> persuasive argument um, that economically for the good of society, uh, women yeah. should be liberated. So, um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I think... I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd probably say that, that in my last book, The Sex Factor, I argued that women's freedom women's ability to take charge of their own lives and do what they want with their own bodies is absolutely fundamental to switching a society from poverty to prosperity. And I argue that the reason mm. why the West grew rich was that we had an unusually large um, number of freedoms as women, not perfect, but relative to parts of the world that had previously been ahead economically, you know, China, the Middle East, India and Pakistan, women in Europe were relatively free. And I argue that was what made the difference in terms of enabling the West to not only catch up with, but overtake these civilizations that had been <laughs> at the top of the world for millennia. And, you know, that book therefore left me with a question, which was, you know, why have so many societies historically constrained women's freedom, despite the fact that it damages their economies, you know, despite the fact it leaves families in poverty. Why are states and societies so intent, despite those, you know, economic financial implications on constraining women? And so that's really why I wanted to go on and write this new book, Naked Feminism, in order to try and answer that question. You know, why, <laughs> why is it that so many societies are so obsessed with, in particular, women's bodily modesty, so obsessed with covering women up and keeping them separate to the rest of society that they will forego you know, the benefits of having a much more equal, much more free society. And so the, the kind of social meaning we put on women's uncovered bodies, the way in which we build women's worth and respect based on the superficiality of the degree to which their bodies are covered, the degree to which their bodies are kept, you know, housed away from the rest of society. That was something I wanted to tackle in this, in this new book. I'm not sure. Did you have such a view about the, in particular, the women's feminists' reaction to your nude protest? Um, how much of what you talk about in this book, Beware of... Uh, Puritanical feminism. <laughs> yes. How much of that was informed by your experience with the the Brexit protest? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that when I first started using my naked body, and actually the very first time I did that was, it was about 10 years ago when I stripped off for artists and began um, life modeling in, in, in a sense. And then I moved from that two-dimensional nakedness to the three dimensions of naked protest. And, you know, when I first started doing that, I expected some type of, that there would be some type of negative response. I expected that there would be a lot of crude comments, for example. And, um, but I, you know, I felt that I had built up an immunity to that, you know, I had come to the conclusion that my worth and my respect as a woman did not depend on my bodily modesty. And I wasn't going to let anyone stand in the way of me using my body the way I wanted to. I wasn't going to let some, you know, 
little people spouting off, you know, calling me horrible names or commenting and judging on my body. I wasn't going to give them the power to stop me doing what I wanted to do with my body. So, you know, in a sense, I had quite a thick skin when it came to the type of, you know, crude and judgmental comments that you got from from some people. Mm -hmm. But what surprised me was the lack of open-mindedness that I felt from some of my fellow feminists. And, you know, throughout, you know, throughout history, women's bodies have been seen as a threat, you know, as I talk about in my book, Naked Feminism. Women's, women's naked bodies, women's sexuality has been seen as a threat, as something that destabilizes society. And so you might expect social conservatives and religious zealots to be resistant to the idea of a woman using her body for something other than sex and babies. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but what I was what I was much less anticipating was feminists themselves being opposed to me using my naked body in the way that I chose. And you know, no one can claim that I was coerced into doing it or that I was, you know, brainwashed into doing it or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, I am clearly using my body freely. Um, in a well thought about, well thought out way. Um, And yet, I started to receive this quite negative reaction from, uh, from a number of feminists, and quite judgmental that I was, you know, letting the side down, that I wasn't really a real feminist, that I was playing to the patriarchy by uncovering my body and putting it out there that I was, you know, partly responsible for women being seen as sex objects, that, you know, by uncovering my body, I was encouraging mankind to treat women disrespectfully. And if only people like me covered up and behaved better, that somehow sexism could be, could be solved. So I became, you know, quite quickly blamed for all kinds of things, uh, as far as some of my fellow feminists were concerned. And, you know, some of those that I knew personally really, um, it, it took a while for them to quite understand that, you know, by exposing my body, I, I, uh, you know, I, I'm doing it freely and that there is a, you know, there is a point to it and that I'm not disrespecting, you know, them as, you know, as fellow women. So, it, you know, it, it was quite a learning process for me. And in the process of seeing that feminist resistance to what I was doing, I began to dig into the history of feminism to see that actually there has always been this puritanical strand within feminism that some of the first feminists in modern history, so the suffragettes, for example, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who were fighting for women's Um, women's uh, right to vote, that they very much built their respect on on their bodily virtue, on being seen as as chaste, on covering their bodies, and that 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 bodily respectability that they had was then the foundations on which they built their what they saw as their moral superiority you know their ability to try and 
teach male politicians <laughs> right from wrong and to, to argue that women have this this superior moral element that we can bring to politics, that we can clean up politics, that we can, uh, you know, improve society. And so that, you know, that was where the early feminists, well, the, the early modern day feminists in terms of the suffragettes went, building their, their towers of uh, feminism on this foundation of bodily purity. And so what they did was to ostracize any woman within their movement that came to be seen as using her body in disrespectable ways. So at the time, many feminists chose not to marry because at the time, if you married, you lost all kinds of rights. You know, you lost the right to your own property, to your own earnings and so on. And so many feminists chose not to marry. Um, But nevertheless, some fell in love with men and would have sex outside of marriage, would fall pregnant outside of marriage. And where that happened, their fellow feminists turned on them and said, you're, you're, bringing fem- you're bringing the suffragette movement into disrepute. And so many you know, notable early feminists were then ostracised, you know, pushed out of the movement, were seen as, uh, as giving feminism a bad name, as doing a great injury to the cause of women. And that puritanical strand within early feminism has continued right the way through the present day. I look at the way that that feminism has treated everything from, you know, women from sex workers to feminist artists who've, who've revealed their own body in the process of their art. So I love, for example, the artist Hannah Wilk, and um, she had a she she had a very famous series of um, photographic images of her own naked body, um, and she was seen as again playing to the patriarchy, as as using her body in a way that played to the male gaze rather than subverting the male gaze, as objectifying herself. Um, and so she she experienced a lot of criticism from from other feminists and similarly for other female artists that have used their own body in their in their work. And, you know, in the modern day, we get celebrities who might go to the Oscars in a you know revealing dress who are seen as letting the side down. Uh, teenage girls, you know, queuing up outside nightclubs in short skirts that are again seen as letting the side down and disrespecting themselves. You know, this is these are the types of presenting themselves as pieces of meat. This is the type of language that you see within feminism, and I, and also you know generally you know so you see within feminism this kind of body phobia, this whore phobia, and also a, a, a kind of phobia against things like femininity and beauty as well. So femininity and beauty are seen as, again, playing to the male gaze, playing to patriarchy. Um, so there's a lot, there are a lot of, there's a lot of judgments that feminists sure. make when it comes to women's bodies that I think leave many women feeling needlessly uncomfortable when really we should be much more open-minded and there is no need for this kind of judgment you know you shouldn't have to pass a test of modesty in order to be accepted into the upper realms of feminism Uh, 
So that was something that I dug into having experienced this feminist resistance to my own, to using my own naked body in art and protest. And it's something that I continue to fight because we are now as a society experiencing a return of puritanism. You know, we've been through the sexual revolution of the 20th century. We're decades on from that. Uh, with that sexual revolution behind us and raunch culture all around us, <laughs> you know, many people are arguing that we need to turn black, back the clock, that we need a return to modesty, that we need to get women's bodies out of the public sphere. And of course, social conservatives and religious zealots are going to argue that, you know, from the Taliban in Afghanistan to the purity culture evangelicals in America. But what is so um, frustrating is to see this puritanical strand of feminism in bed with those <laughs> with those Puritans, agreeing with them that we need a return to modesty, that if only women covered up their bodies and crossed their legs and <laughs> you know behaved more modestly, that somehow society would be better and sexism would be solved and um, uh, you know, that would provide a better foundation for, for everyone. So I think that return to Puritanism is very worrying in itself. But what I think is doubly worrying is the fact that rather than standing up to that, feminists are instead joining the ranks of those Puritans. And how on earth can we resist the Puritanical comeback as women if even feminism isn't on, isn't on our side? What, what, what puzzles me about that, the argument that mm -hmm. feminists make that you're talking about, uh, and certainly not all feminists, obviously, um, yeah. is when you're giving in to the male gaze uh, or you're refusing to give in to the male gaze, yeah. Yeah. then isn't that still them controlling you? Isn't that still the patriarchy controlling you? Because you're, cho you're choosing to not be free with your body because yeah. of them. You're not changing them. It's the same argument as you shouldn't wear a short skirt because it might turn somebody on. No? It's quite Orwellian, isn't it? To say yeah. that I am going to constrain my body in order to free my body. I am going right. to <laughs> hide my body in order to free my body. So it is quite Orwellian that we have to constrain our bodies in order to be free. I think it's a Pyrrhic victory <laughs> if what we claim is that if we just cover our bodies, everything will be fine. I mean, I do think that, you know, if... To be honest, if a piece of cloth was enough to solve sexism, if by veiling our bodies suddenly that stopped men groping us and stopped men raping us and meant that we were treated with greater respect and so on, if, if a piece of cloth had that magical power, I would be the first to cover my body in a piece of cloth and stop naked protesting. But it doesn't. And actually, one of the things the book shows is if you look across the world, if you look at the societies where women are expected to be most modest, so if you look at places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, um, Egypt, you know, I could go on. If you look at these societies where women are expected to be much more modest with their bodies, they're not safer, they're not more respective, they, they are not healthier, they are not freer, they are not better educated. 
that actually those that promise that modesty will be our saviour as women, that if only we're more modest, we can live happier, healthier, freer lives, we can be taken more seriously, we can be heard more, you know, we can be respected as politicians, as educators, as doctors, as lawyers. Sadly, the evidence isn't there for that, <laughs> that where women have healthier better educated, wealthier <laughs> lives is where we worry less about their bodily modesty, where women are much more free in terms of their bodies. Now, what I should, what I should make clear is that, you know, I'm someone who fundamentally believes that every single woman should be free to make her own decisions about her own body. So I am as against bands on headscarves as I am against people who, you know, who who uh, ring the police if, you know, if I was to do a naked protest. You know, I honestly think that every woman should be free to choose for herself her own degree of bodily modesty. And I think the, you know, the sign of being a free society is when you have that variety, yes. when women can be as modest or immodest as they like. And the problem at the moment is that women at both ends of the spectrum the most immodest and the most modest get a raw deal. You know, you're, you're expected to conform, to be somewhere in the middle. Um, and if you're either, you know, if you're if you're too immodest relative to that average person, you're seen as letting the side down. And similarly, if you're too modest, so if you're covering your body more than the average person, if you're veiling your hair, then again, you're seen as letting the side down because, in a sense, you're seen as leaving other women naked in comparison. <laughs> you know, so for those that believe that a woman's respect and worth depends on her bodily modesty, there is, in a sense, this, comp this implicit competition between women, this modesty competition. And if some women are being more modest than you, they're, in a sense, showing you up <laughs> within, within the modesty cult. Whereas if we could drop the whole notion that a woman's worth depends on her bodily modesty, then, you know, we wouldn't be as judgmental about not just immodest women, but modest women. We could all be just free to do what we want with yeah. our with our bodies and to dress as we wish without it having, you know, these seemingly, <laughs> you know, huge implications for, for womankind in, in either direction. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's not just women, actually, because I've been asked yeah. before as a naturist um, yeah. that I must be against, you know, the the veil or and in favor yeah. of bands. And I said, no, it's yeah. exactly that's ex the, the same exact problem. I'm being yeah. told by the state what I can and cannot wear. Yeah. We actually have a lot in common. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The women who want to wear a veil are not allowed to. Yeah. And me who doesn't want to wear anything. It's yeah. the same exact issue. It is. It is. Absolutely. But people don't always see that. Um, yes, yeah, absolutely. And what we've got to remember in a kind of historical context in, in you know, looking back at you know, Europe's history, Europe's imperial history, that it was Europeans, buttoned up Victorians, for example, from Britain, who went, you know, traipsing across the world, trampling on other territories and Whilst on the one hand, they were telling, for example, people in Australia to cover their bodies, they were they were traipsing into the Middle East and telling women in the Middle East that they had to uncover their hair. And again, this was all part of this idea that to uphold the modesty and respectability of Western women, 
you couldn't have women out there who were being more modest. You know, buttoning up your, your dress was one thing, covering your hair was another. You left European women naked in comparison. So there are quite, you know, colonial imperial uh, dimensions to, to, the, to, to telling people what to wear and to determining what is, you know, what is right or wrong. And ultimately, as, as, as we agree, a world in which every person is free to choose for themselves is a much healthier and happier world. Well, so, so let, me, uh, let me probe you a little bit on your, your earlier thesis that uh, mm -hmm. the world is going towards uh, more of a more modesty. Um, yeah. I, don't, we, have, we, we have so much access to nudity on, yeah. on the internet. A lot of television movies and shows now have lots of nudity, um, yeah. media, music, videos. Um, youth today are absolutely yeah. not limiting themselves when they are on Bumble or anything else to for dating. Um, so is that really true? Yeah. So, so certainly it seems on the face of it that we are surrounded by raunch culture. You know, women's raunch, bodies yes. in particular yeah. sure. seem to be available 24 hours a day on demand on any mobile phone or computer. But in part, in response to that, you're seeing this bubbling puritanism. You're seeing this resistance to it. You're seeing this idea that that with the availability of women's bodies is destabilizing society, you know, changing people's minds and that we need to rein it in. And you see that in uh, religious circles. You see, for example, you know, in 1979 in Iran, there was the Iranian revolution when it was ruled that, you know, all women in Iran from that point on had to cover their hairs. There was this view that uncovered hair was inciting prostitution, was turning Iran into a nation of harlots, and that that was destabilizing the family, destabilizing society, hurting the the um, hurting Iran as a country. And so the solution was women have to cover their hairs. Hair. In in Afghanistan, you're seeing this backlash in terms of you know women not only having to cover their hair but being pulled out of the workplace being pulled out of schools to prevent them tempting men to prevent their bodies being seen and touched by men in order to try and rebalance society restabilize society in indonesia right you know just a few months ago in in indonesia their um sex outside of marriage was ruled uh, was ruled illegal, that people engaging in sex outside of marriage are again seen as destabilizing society. And in America right now, in the United States, you're seeing this growing purity movement, virginity pledges, chastity balls, modesty ponchos, that takes the view that again, women's bodies are tempting men into bad behavior. And if only women could return to modesty, things, um, things would be so much better. So in part, in response to the kind of raunch that we see around us, you're seeing this backlash taking place. And that's something that we've seen repeatedly throughout history, that you know, rather than history being one long march towards bodily and sexual freedom, instead the pendulum has swung back and forth across time. And whenever you've had a period of liberalism, when it comes to the body and sex, whenever you've had a period of liberalism, it has been followed uh, by a period of puritanism. So mm -hmm. it, you, ha you had you know, me in medieval times, you have the bawdiness of Chaucer and Shakespeare. You had you know, even, even um, 
the Virgin Mary, you know, even her claim to virginity came to be questioned by religious people and religious pilgrims who went on treks across Europe searching for, you know, searching for redemption or finding God. You know, they collected little souvenir badges that, that had little genitalia, flying genitalia kind of on them. So there was that kind of bawdiness of the medieval period. And then, of course, what came after that, the Puritans of the 1600s, mm-hmm. that clamped down on you know, sex workers, on single mums, and on you know, alcohol, on um, theatre. <laughs> And then after that, you have the switch to the Georgians. You know, things things were seen as going a bit too too much in the puritanical direction. So then things started to liberalise a bit again. And the Georgian age, the 1700s, women's breasts became all the range, the bouncing bosom. The, uh, you know, the uncovered breasts of a woman became the symbol of the French Revolution in the end of the 1700s. But then again, you get a, you get a backlash against that. Um, you get a backlash in terms of the Victorians, <laughs> the buttoned up Victorians. And then again, liberalisation again with the sexual revolution of the 20th century and now a return to Puritanism. So you've seen these, these puritanical comebacks throughout history. And in my book, I look at that swinging pendulum and I tried to pull out the factors that, that, that seem to cause the, this, this very up and down nature <laughs> of society. You know, and we, you and I have already talked about the up and down nature of the economy, mm-hmm. um, but there is also this very up and down nature to society. So I look at the, you know, what's the root, what's at the root cause of that? I mean, I'm asking you a question that I'm asked as well when I'm interviewed and uh, with regards to naturism. And my observation as well is that, yes, this increased nudity or raunchism, as you call it, and that's exactly the problem. It's not just nudity. It's it's nudity with hypersexuality and an enormous amount of body objectification. So it's not liberating at all. It's quite the opposite. So uh, so I think I think that, you know, I think that you are never going to, you know, you're never going to... <laughs> Get rid of pornography, for example. No. You're never going to get rid of, you know, adult movies and so on. You're never going to get rid of, um, you know, people gazing on other people's bodies for sexual stimulation. You're never going to get rid of that. So I think, you know, as an economist, <laughs> it's pretty clear. The incentives are pretty clear. Someone's always going to make a profit from selling sure. pornography, for example. So. What, what you know what we you know we can either take the route that we're going to try and stamp it out but you know it's not going to work and also you know there is a lot of judgment within that you know that sex is bad for example and you know that has you know <laughs> that, that has caused so much damage in history so you know i wouldn't go in that direction the alternative direction to go in is to just make sure that when it comes to sex and the body that people are not just exposed to a very uh, limited, very rigid um, view of what, you know, sex and the body are like, you know, a very particular kind of manicured or um, particular type of, of female body, for example, or, you know, when it comes to sex, that you have to be, 
you know, heterosexual and that anything else is, you know, anything else is wrong. So, you know, pornography, for example, is very much made to um, male, uh, male tastes and typically yes. to, you know, heterosexual male tastes. There, you know, still very little in the way of what we could call feminist porn out there. And so, usually with an, an abusive view of, of absolutely. women of, as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you can either try and stamp things out or you can try and work towards a world that is much more rounded and um, and much less rigid in terms of how we present the body and also sex. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know why men are not insulted by uh, the cult of Puritanism because it implies mm -hmm. that we are so incredibly weak that we have no oh, control. Yes. Yes. And that we have no say in our lives. Um, yes. That's I personally find that highly insulting. Yes. Um, so yeah. yes, yes. There's there's nothing inbuilt that means that you need to go stare <laughs> stare at a at a particular part of a woman's bodies and a body. And in fact, in many you know different societies, different parts of a woman's body are seen as attractive, aren't they? You know, in right. in, in in some parts of you know some societies for example the back of the knee is seen as an extremely erotic part of the female body in other societies it's breasts in other societies it's bottoms and so on and so you know, if you see you know if, if you take this to the extreme you know all women would be fully covered their hair for example you know in Iran their hair is seen as inciting harlotry so you know take this to the logical conclusion and and we end up you know covered from head to toe <laughs> in order to prevent um, tempting tempting men yet it doesn't work as you point no. out in your book as well yeah so it's yeah it's the the problem is a societal attitude in general. It's a societal yes. attitude that uh, men are trained to have. It's not built yes. in, um, yes. and and men are victim of that as well. Uh, it affects. Yes. They have poor relationships uh, as a result, yeah. and they have self esteem issues yeah. as a result. And women are the yeah. victim, of course, as we're talking about very much so as yeah. well. Um, so we're all losing with this attitude. Yeah, um, I mean, I I can put uh, you know some some basic data that I have in my book you know, in Egypt, Morocco and Palestine, more than 80% of men think that their honor as men depends on how their female relatives dress. Hmm. That if their female relatives are immodestly dressed, then that reflects badly on the men in the family. And therefore the men actively police you know, their sisters, their wives, their daughters, and so on, because they feel that their respect hangs on how their female relatives dress and also how they behave, you know, sexually, whether they're, for example, seen as having a reputation for having sex outside of marriage. So the whole way that we're brought up to believe that a woman's respect and worth depends on her bodily modesty and that that in turn reflects on a man's honour. You know, that is extremely damaging. And, you know, the problem is not women's bodies. The problem is what's going on in our minds. The problem is that attitude. And if we could, you know, retrain our brains such that we respect people on the basis of much more important things than the degree to which their body is on show, which after all is a pretty superficial way to, to, to judge someone 
based on how much of their body is on show and the degree to which that body has been seen and touched by other people. You know, if we could actually value each other as human beings on the basis of much more important things, you know, how kind and generous are we? How open-minded are we? How tolerant are we? And so on then it would, you know, in that kind of world, it would seem very strange indeed that we were judging, you know, naked women to be to be cheap and unrespectable or promiscuous women to be cheap and unrespectable. So, uh, of course, I agree that we should be uh, accepting as a naturist of the human body. Um, <laughs> but let me, there's a chicken or the egg situation, right? Yeah. So in Canada, for example, women have had the right to, to be top free uh, mm -hmm. since the early 90s, right. but you still do not see it on the beach. So yeah. by you're, you're trying, you're, sh you're, you're setting an example. Mm -hmm. So my question is, though, is does your nudity, whether it is uh, in this case of the promotion of the book or in protesting yeah. Brexit, does it add for your message or does it detract from it? Because the reality is you're living in the reality of this world, oh, yeah. not the world that we want, right? Yeah, no, ex exactly. We're living in an imperfect world. And, you know, I have faced being ostracized by, you know, parts of my community, parts of my community. I have faced being ostracized by fellow feminists. I have been, you know, disinvited to various, you know, groups, communities and so on as a result of my naked protesting. I have, you know, academic colleagues who have never spoken to me once since I, since I revealed my body. I have, you know, and that's in addition to the, you know, thousands, millions of people online that have at times tried to shame me by calling me, you know, all kinds of horrible names and so on. So there is, you know, there is a, a quite significant personal cost, I think, to, to failing to conform with what is expected of you. But at the same time, if you believe in what you are doing, then, you know, it gets conversations going. You know, I have, as a result of my naked protests, had really engaging, interesting conversations with, with, with all kinds of people, whether that is in person, whether that is online. Um, and I have, you know, my own views, my own feelings on life have in turn been changed by seeing other, you know, women <laughs> uh, using their bodies. So, for example, you know, feminist artists who have revealed their bodies as part of their art, you know, that had a great effect on me. And, you know, when I first, when I first came to engage with, um, with the arts, and admittedly, as someone who was studying sciences and maths and economics at school, you know, I wasn't really exposed to paintings and literature and so on. But in my late teens and my 20s, I did start to venture out of the sciences, engage more with the arts, and became, you know, became an avid visitor of galleries. And when I first came across feminist art where the artist was was using her own naked body i was really shocked and you know my initial response was that this is why why is a woman doing this you know why doesn't she feel shame for doing this and it was in a sense by having to confront my own feelings you know the fact that that art meant that it revealed my own feelings about how i was judging other women 
and then having to really work through that. And actually, I would say that was a process that took some years to work through to try and deprogram my brain from this idea that a woman's worth and respect does depend on her bodily modesty and that to be taken seriously as women, we must cover up. It was by, you know, being exposed to these naked feminist artists that I first, you know, really had began to reveal my own internalization of this modesty cult and to confront it. So it had, you know, it had a really significant effect on me. And I think, you know, therefore that it does, it does have a power if people are happy to be a little bit open-minded about it to, uh, and engage. But of course, it's not going to, <laughs> you know, you're not going to transform the world <laughs> as one, as one little, naked protester um, but you know as someone who is in a position of privilege as an academic at you know, an ivory towers university then what i do feel is that i should be using that position of privilege for good and that as a social scientist as an academic my job isn't just to look down from the ivory towers it is to question and push the boundaries of society um and to to raise difficult questions, to to be challenging, rather than to accept the society you're born into, to really push that. Um, and you know, my my youth was was very different to my life now. So I was born in a poor family in the north of England, um, a, you know, a, a, an average working class family, and in a community in which as a young woman, you were seen as more likely to get pregnant as a teenager than you were to go to university. And I felt therefore very judged based on my body. You, know, you felt as a teenage girl that you were written off, that you were not taken seriously, that you were not heard, largely because of judgments people were making about you. And those judgments were typically based on you know, how you dressed, um, whether you had a reputation for sleeping round. And, you know, those kinds of judgments, I could see the way in which young women around me were having their lives written off, were being, you know, mistreated by authority figures because they were seen as worthless, because they were seen as fair game, because they were seen as unrespectable and, and unvalued. And, you know, as I collected my badges of academic achievement, in my initial response was to think, well, I must protect my body. My body is a liability. I must make sure I don't develop a reputation for promiscuity. I must make sure I cover my body so I'm seen as respectable. And, you know, over time, I began to think that aren't I, you know, am I not being complicit in the way that as a society, we divide women up into good girls and tarts or you know I won't use stronger language because it, I don't want to offend anyone but the good girls and the harlots and all the bodies and the brains you know was I not being complicit in that and I wanted to try and you know use my position of privilege to subvert that to show that you know um, you shouldn't your respectability as a woman shouldn't depend on something as superficial as your bodily modesty that behind every body is a brain, that every brain is housed in a body, and that women shouldn't have to choose between their brain and the body, that we should all be free to be whole people. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Well, so yes, so since birth, as a woman, you've been told by society that your your greatest value is what you look like for the pleasure yes. of others, not for yourself. Yes. And that, which of course, uh, as we get older, meet the standard less and less. Yes. So you said it took you a while to get over all that. Mm-hmm. Have you really? Like, because uh, uh, so today you're being interviewed by someone who is equally unclothed. Uh, yeah. It's a friendly audience. Are you really that comfortable being interviewed all the time, uh, wearing nothing at all, when you have uh, a fairly typical yeah. male on the other side, perhaps? <laughs> so, um, I, oh, I've done, I, I have done quite a few interviews like this now in, in, yeah. in the nude with, um, with a whole range of different interviewers. Um, I mean, I think there is a power to conveying my message <laughs> in visual form. I think it is, it is sadly, isn't it? It is unusual to see a naked woman who is talking seriously and comfortably because typically when we see naked women, we see their bodies on the pages of magazines, for mm-hmm. example, you know, yes. and then you see covered women doing the talking, you know, as the politicians and so on. And that seems to just, you know, crystallize this idea that as women, we have to choose. We're either the body and our brain disappears or we're the brain and we have to hide our bodies. And I think, you know, there is something um, significant in showing that when you are in your state of immodesty, as I would call it, your brain doesn't suddenly come to a standstill. You can still talk seriously. You can still have something important, hopefully, <laughs> you know, important or of, uh, of, of use to use to say. So I think it would be, you know, I could, I could cover up whilst delivering the same message, but I would feel that I was being untrue to my message to do so. And in fact, so my, my book, Naked Feminism, my body is on the front cover. My brain is within the words <laughs> of the book. It is body and brain in one package. Now, interestingly, Amazon ads were not very happy about that. And so when this book initially came out, Amazon ads banned it because they didn't like the body on the front cover. But there's nothing showing. I mean, for people who are, they can't see it because it's audio only, but there's no nipple, there's no genitals, there's nothing, right? It's a very carefully zoomed in picture of my body. So you can see the belly button, you can see the lower cleavage, but there is no nipple on display. Um, so it is really the tummy <laughs> and the lower cleavage. So very carefully chosen by my publishers, such that it isn't breaking any um, breaking any rules really. And also that it can be every woman. You know, I, I would have been quite happy to have my whole naked body on the front here, but it would have been very identifiable as me. And this is a book that speaks to every woman. It is not just about my own personal experience. It is about the experiences of women across history and across the world. So by zooming into this this, this central bit of the torso, it, it is in a sense trying to represent all all women. But yes, Amazon ads felt that that was too sexually suggestive, that it was drawing too much attention to the breasts, even though the belly button is more, you know, <laughs> just as much as on show was the lower cleavage. And so they banned it from being advertised. And that meant that rather like scantily clad women, <laughs> it was ostracized. It wasn't able to feature alongside other books on 
um, on feminism on Amazon. It was left on its own. And now, fortunately, after a concerted social media campaign with, I'm sure, the support of a number of your perhaps British-based listeners <laughs> and the help of a uh, of a British journalist, Amazon ads managed to see the error of their ways, and they, you know, in more recent times, they have overturned their decision, and now this book is happily advertised on Amazon. But I think that does speak to the way in which, as women, we are expected to censor our bodies in order to be heard. You know, I wasn't able to have even this small part of my body on the front cover of my book in order for my book to be out there advertised, heard and read. I had to, in a sense, choose between my body and my brain. And whilst my body has now been set free <laughs> in terms of what's, what appears on this book, you know, this lack of freedom that women have and the judgments that they face in their daily life continues. You know, this problem isn't solved, that it is something affecting the lives of millions of women across the world. So you, um, on that note, in the book, mm-hmm. um, you have, in the introduction, you talk about uh, the pornification of America by Bernadette mm-hmm. Barton. Yes. And uh, you yourself have had your imagery on porn sites without your permission. Without my permission. And yeah. your authorization. And you criticize her advice, which is basically to do other things so you become, you work really hard and become known for other things so people forget about it. But you don't, you criticize that quite correctly, I agree. Yeah. But you don't provide your own advice. So what would your advice be? Um, well, I would say to every every woman out there, you know, why should your respect and your worth as a woman depend on your bodily modesty? Why should you have to choose between your body and your brain? Why should you be rendered cheap? <laughs> you know, if you are scantily clad or if you... Um, If you've chosen to have lots of sexual partners, for example, I think every woman should ultimately be free to make her own decisions about her body. And we should be aiming for a world that is truly my body, my choice, that isn't just my body, my choice in the way that the feminist intellectual elites might choose, but is a world in which we are free from bodily judgment, a world in which we can abandon the super, superficiality of being judged on the basis of you know the state of our clothing or whether our hymen's intact okay. um, and we're you know we are valued as equal human beings that we are seen for what is you know what's inside <laughs> so yes um every woman should be able to hold her head high rather than live in fear Feminism will only have succeeded and women will only be truly free once we confront and challenge the cult of female modesty. I'm reading there from um, from my book. So when you look at, you know, the way the cult of female modesty is affecting, you know, women's lives in Afghanistan, where they're being pulled out of school, pulled out of the workplace, not able to walk their children around parks in Iran, where they're being shot at in the street for removing their headscarves in America, where within evangelical circles, girls that are seen as having a reputation are written off as second-hand cars, you know, as beaten-up cars that are seen, uh, you know, that are devalued, that are seen as shameful. You know, when we look at how much 
better educated, how much happier, how much healthier women would be if we could drop this cult of female modesty. You know, we could solve so many of the problems that affect women's lives in one fail swoop if we could just change people's attitudes to stop this judgment on the basis of women's bodily modesty. Now, I could add so many things, virginity testing, you know, honour killings, female genital mutilation, um, revenge porn. You know, why does revenge porn, which is a growing problem in our societies, why does it hold so much power? Because our respect as women still hangs on our bodily modesty. And if it is seen publicly that we have been, you know, engaging in sexual activity, and if our bodies are seen in that, in, in that type of light, then that's seen as bringing shame on us. And so mm. revenge porn has that, you know, has that power. You know, as you say, we are a society of raunch, but at the same time, we are a society in which women who are written off as the harlots of society, where they suffer severe consequences, where they suffer, you know, disrespect, mistreatment, isolation. And, you know, often those women are on the margins of society, you know, whether it is poor teenage girls, whether it's strippers, whether it's the victims of revenge porn, you know, often these are women that, um, that really need to have their voices heard and that we are too quickly writing off ignoring their voices, telling them that they're only worth listening to if they, you know, if they change the way they dress or if they, you know, stop sleeping around or whatever. And, you know, that is a very, um, that is a world that is filled with, um, filled with all kinds of challenges but for women. Let me, let, me, let me push you a little bit more on that point because mm -hmm. the images being re misused is a big issue yeah. within naturism because, of course, I see. Yes. An, an, an image... Uh, yes. You know, it, to be pornography, it, it's in the eye of yeah. the beholder and the intent yeah. of the creator. Yeah. So, if a woman's yeah. image is misused, yeah. um, what should their reaction be? What do you yeah. think you, they should do? Well, because it's not I the think, ideal yeah. world we would both like, right? No, no, I, I know, and and I, I, you know, I certainly can only speak for myself. I can't, I can't speak for all women. I know in my case, you know, I have had my images, my naked protest videos, um, downloaded and uploaded by other people onto porn websites and so on. And, you know, sometimes I get messages on social media from women trying to shame me saying, can you believe your your um, your video is up here on, you know, the, with the name of some porn website? To be honest, I, <laughs> I don't really know the I don't visit these websites. So I you know, have no idea. But um, but yeah, I'm, sometimes it's brought to my attention that my videos are on there. And I think often the people that bring it to my attention want me to go, oh no, you know, to burst into tears, to feel very, you know, embarrassed about this or shamed about this. And I don't, because, you know, at the end of the day, what, you know, how that video is being used on a porn website is not taking a piece of me, <laughs> no matter what someone's doing in response to that pornographic video. It doesn't take a piece of my body. It doesn't leave me any less as a human being. Now, it might reflect on, you know, whoever has, you know, taken that video and uploaded it in an illegal way, in a way that I haven't agreed to and I haven't approved. You know, it reveals a lot about them it doesn't reveal anything about me. I know I feel no shame and I don't feel that, you know, just because some 
person is watching that video doing what they want with it, I don't feel that that has to reflect badly on me. I don't feel that that takes a piece of me away, that that renders me and my body less, you know, less valuable, less, less worthy. So that's my own personal reaction. And so certainly I'm not going to burst into tears, you know, the next time someone tells me that my latest video has gone up, you know, on a porn website, I just bat it off, you know, like water off a duck's back. And, you know, so what? I'm not going to let it stand in the way. I'm not going to let it stop me doing what I want to do with my own body. It doesn't reveal anything bad about me. It might reveal something bad about other people. I think it certainly does. But I'll continue doing what what I want to do. But I can only say that from my own (laughs) from my own personal reaction. And I can, of course, understand completely if other people feel very differently about that. And I know, you know, I wouldn't have to go back many years in my life to know that you know that 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 would have you know that I, that I would have fallen apart at, you know at, fi- at finding out and you know i i see time and time again how women's lives are you know are in a sense ruined by you know something like that happening but the reason why they are ruined isn't because they've done anything wrong it's because of this judgment that we face from other people in society who are hanging our worth and our respect on our bodily modesty and you know they are the ones that are wrong not us so the at the beginning of the book you also talk about uh, the support you've had from nature's community yes um and uh, you do briefly mention the attitude that nature's have towards the body and nudity but generally you don't address you don't talk about the lessons learned or anything like that from the movement is yeah. there nothing worthwhile in 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 your dissertation that you can be learned you from can, naturist? You can tell you can tell me, Stefan. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure I still have a lot to learn from the naturist community. And yeah, admittedly, I probably shouldn't call myself a naturist because you know I use my body, I use my naked body in a very public way. I you know I remove my clothes in order to deliver a political message, whether that is to fight Brexit or whether it's to fight. Uh, for women's, uh, you know, fertility, (laughs) freedom to control their own fertility. So I use my body as a political messaging board. And yes, some days of the year when it's nice and warm and sunny, you can find me lounging around at home without my clothes. But other days, you know, I... (laughs) The majority of time I'm, I'm in my suit, you know, <laughs> sat teaching in my suit or whatever else. So, you know, I don't think that I would qualify really as um, as a naturist, but I am certainly keen to learn from um, from the naturist community. And also, you know, another community that I have been you know, very honoured to receive the support of is the sex worker community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the time I'm learning things from um, from the sex worker community. And so I think, you know, we all have so much to learn from one another. And, you know, ultimately this isn't a book that is simply about the right of every woman to be naked, though that it is implicit within it. It is about um, tracking the course of human history, tracking the ups and downs in the ways that we have judged uh, judged women and fighting for a better world in which we can overturn the kinds of constraints that face women today, uh, whether those are bodily constraints or whether those are restrictions on their access to work, education and healthcare.
Uh, ironically, the, uh, the, the sex worker community mm-hmm. and the nature's community probably have a lot in common, unfortunately, as yeah. naturists, because we're constantly fighting the idea that nudity equals sex, uh, it's, yeah. it's essentially impossible for us to work together because it would just reinforce what we've been fighting for 100 years to try to dissuade people of and still can't seem to succeed. So, But I would say that, you know, you, you, you don't have to call yourself a naturist, but yeah. everything you talk about in your book are naturist ideals, um, yes. especially in, as I call them uh, ethical naturists. I, I yes. talk about a scale uh, be, from recreational naturist to ethical naturist, and uh, yeah. where where you look at it as a, an ideology or a philosophy, um, that's yes. to me a more ethical naturist. Whereas a recreational naturist yes. is the one who just likes to sunbathe yes. naked and nothing yes. doesn't really see any uh, particular values behind it. And but it's a scale. Yeah. People are somewhere in between, and yeah. I, I think you're you're obviously comfortable. You understand the uh, the concepts. You push yourself, which is what an ethical yeah. naturist would do, to question uh, a lot of society's uh, assumptions about the human body. So, so yes, I, you're absolutely a naturist in my mind. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the first book that she wrote is The Sex Factor, which is available, of course, and also very interesting. Uh, it's about women's contribution uh, to society and how liberating women is a key to success in societies. But Naked Feminism, uh, the most recent book that just came out uh, now in May 2023, is even more interesting uh, and more relevant to naturist values and naturist philosophy. So if you have a chance, I would uh, read both books. They're both available in the Bear Boutique at Bear Oaks if you happen to be coming by. And hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the Bear Boutique online version will also be available. If not, of course, it's available through many other uh, bookstores and book retailers. So take a look uh, for those. So with that, that will be the end for this episode of The Naturist Living Show. Thank you for listening all the way through. Again, my name is Stéphane Deschain. I'm your host for this podcast and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. I make the show with a lot of help from Samantha Graham, who makes this task easier by producing the show, doing a lot of time-consuming editing, and keeping me organized. The show's theme music is The Day We Met by Mark Hodges. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash naturistlivingshow. One word, and as I've said many times, the money's not for me. I don't get any of it. I don't benefit from this. This is to keep the show going so you can have more content to listen to. It pays for Samantha's time and some of the expenses involved in running the show. You can find links to all the items we uh, mentioned in the podcast, in this episode, in the show notes on our website, which is naturistlivingshow.com. All one word, dot com. So keep sending your comments and suggestions. We always appreciate reading them, and we read them all, even if we don't always reply. The show's email address is contact at naturistlivingshow.com. I hope you enjoy the show and that you'll join us again for the next episode of The Naturist Living Show. This episode of The Naturist Living Show was brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park, traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Traditional values means that naturism is more than just taking your clothes off. It is a life philosophy with physical, psychological, environmental, social, and moral benefits. 
Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park strives to promote those naturist values in a modern setting that provides the amenities and services that our members and visitors expect. Free your body, free your mind. Learn more at www.bearoaks.ca. Welcome, dear listener, to episode 151 of the Nature... Let's try that again. Welcome, dear listener. No, I shouldn't be laughing about it. Let's try it again. <clears throat> I'm just trying to think where I'm going from here. Sorry, Samantha. Um, and before we get started today, 